welcome everyone to episode 38 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Our first story from this episode comes from ancientorigins.net, and this is the follow-up, the part two, to the story from last episode, Mythological Creatures Are Among Us, Guardians of the Sacred White Bison. Cynthia Hart Button and husband Charles are the guardians of the sacred white bison. They've cared for and nurtured a small herd of these rare creatures for nearly two decades. This couple's dedication to each other and their bison is, as the Navajo expression goes, a walk in beauty. And this is how it all came to be. Cynthia spent her childhood on a ranch near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She was born in 1954 to Uriah Gus and Phyllis Garrison. Cynthia's heritage is unique, to say the least. Her mother was of Welsh descent, coming from a long line of Celtic clairvoyance. Her father, of Lakota German ancestry, was related to the great Lakota holy man Sitting Bull. Uriah's traditional name was Tatanka Ska, or White Buffalo. Little Golden Bear, as Cynthia was called by her father, had a rather idyllic childhood. Her father was blessed with a special gift for training and healing animals. He was called upon by various zoos as well as Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus to attend to exotic animals. Between school, ranch chores, dance classes, visits from circus animals, and her love of competitive barrel racing, there was little time for a bright, energetic girl to be idle or bored. Cynthia traveled to foreign lands with her family and experienced much for a youngster. One might say she was a precocious child. We cannot continue with this intriguing story until first explaining a unique situation in the childhood of this extraordinary woman. Cynthia was born visually impaired. As the blind often do, she developed extrasensory skills to compensate. When she was six years old, her father took in a family from India who could not find any hospitality in town. This family taught Cynthia yoga exercises, which partially gave her sight. As a result, she gained a worldly view and yet retained her extrasensory skills. On occasion, Cynthia's gifts helped to find lost objects or kids who got lost in a wooded parkland adjacent to the family ranch. After working as a teen model for cosmetics and fashion, as Cynthia came into her 20s, she launched a career as an intuitive on a radio talk show in Ohio. Her reputation as a clairvoyant became well known. However, an unusual seismic event would dramatically influence the course of her life. In 1980, while climbing Mount McKinley, Cynthia had a vision of an intense earthquake in Ohio. She realized lives and property would be in danger when the quake hit. She hurried back to Ohio to warn people. What? An earthquake in America's Midwest? No way. Weeks after Cynthia uttered this premonition in public, an intense earthquake rocked northern Kentucky and rumbled all the way up to Canada. It measured 5.1 on the Richter scale, causing moderate damage in Ohio and Kentucky. Thankfully, her reputation for accurate predictions convinced employees of a nearby nuclear power plant 
to shift a nuclear waste storage site on Lake Erie to a more secure, inland location. That's the good news. Difficulties began for Cynthia when she became a media sensation after her prediction came true. In public and at home, people began hounding her for readings and healing. It became apparent to Cynthia that she would have to relocate to have any semblance of a personal life. A family friend came to her aid with an offer to work as a ranch hand in Sedona, Arizona. A bit overwhelmed by sudden fame, Cynthia welcomed the opportunity. A picturesque high desert plateau richly steeped in ancient native traditions became her sanctuary, nudging this remarkable young woman closer to her true calling. In Sedona, Cynthia regrouped and became part of Arizona's unique southwestern culture. She worked for a time as a ranch hand and a pack mule tour guide on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Part of her quest in coming west was to fulfill her father's wish that she seek the essence of her Native American heritage. Uriah wanted his daughter to find balance and inner peace. Cynthia traveled to various tribal areas across the western U.S. in search of answers. She also met and married the love of her life, musician Charles Button. Life was good. In 1988, Cynthia's father, Uriah, became terminally ill. Her world suddenly fell apart. This father and daughter were so very close, she couldn't believe what was happening. Little Golden Bear braved her sorrow and was a precious joy to her father in his final days. As he lay dying of cancer, Uriah told his daughter he was glad he raised her on a ranch because in the coming years she would need those skills to care for the sacred white buffalo. Cynthia was surprised and a bit skeptical of her father's words, thinking it might be a dying man's feverish dream. After all, she was familiar with the sacred white buffalo prophecy, but the white bison itself was practically a mythical being. Had Uriah foreseen something in his daughter's future? Cynthia thought it strange, but her father's dying words stuck with her. Although initially skeptical, in the back of her mind she believed her father and wanted to be prepared. Cynthia always carries around an old dog-eared copy of the book, Black Elk Speaks. This book is one of the premier psalms of modern Native American spirituality. She was honored with her copy by Black Elk's grandson, Wallace. It is a book that is inspired and spoken to her. The wise words of Hiakaspa, Black Elk, would show her the way. Cynthia had to prepare. Maybe the vision quest Black Elk mentions in his book would be the best way for her to do so. In the early 1990s, Cynthia decided to go through with the vision quest. This Native American spiritual rite of passage is for those who wish to discover their personal power and life's path. It was a daring decision meant to deepen her traditional spiritual essence and prepare her for what was to come. Hollis Little Creek, an elder of the Creek Nation, was living in Sedona then. He was teaching Cynthia traditional ways. She mentioned the vision quest to her mentor, and he agreed it would be useful. What Mr. Little Creek didn't mention was the modern version of this spiritual sojourn had been pared down to a week or less. What Cynthia didn't mention was her intent to go on a traditional spiritual quest. She did so, unaware of the modern way. Cynthia isolated herself deep in the wilderness, dedicating a year of her life to solitary meditation. Cynthia Hart knew she must complete a vision quest in order to prepare for the challenges that lay ahead. For this purpose, she chose a cave in the Cascade Mountains, 
high above her friend Shane's property in Washington State. The Cascades are no joke. It's one of America's most lush and rugged ranges. This rainforest is loaded with wildlife of all description, including top predators who will eat human beings, especially during the harsh snowbound months. Cynthia did not come unprepared. As companions on her vision quest, two Alaskan tundra wolves came along that she had raised from pups. These amazing snow-white wolves literally saved her life during this year-long hiatus. This marvelous story was recently published. It's an intimate autobiography entitled The Light Within, My Journey Home to the White Buffalo, and reveals sage insights for Vision Quest initiates as well as Cynthia's personal account of this profound spiritual experience. The book also gives us a look at her life. After her incredible quest in the Cascades, Cynthia ran across her former mentor, Hollis Little Creek, back in Sedona. He was glad to see her and wondered where she'd been hiding for so long. Cynthia told Little Creek of her year-long hiatus. She then discovered the modern vision quest could be completed in a week or less. They had a good laugh about that. Her preparation was complete. In November of 2001, Cynthia and Charles Button crossed paths with the white bison. The Riley family had sired two white bison females on their Wyoming ranch. Cynthia heard about this and wanted to support the well-being of these amazing animals. She also wanted to fulfill the Riley's wish to bring their bison to a ranch near Flagstaff, Arizona. Cynthia organized a fundraiser in Sedona to do so. The fundraiser went well, and the Rileys moved to Spirit Mountain Ranch outside of Flagstaff. Cynthia and Charles visited the bison at the Flagstaff Ranch soon afterwards. With his health failing, Jim Riley asked Cynthia and Charles to caretake his bison part-time while he recovered. Fate, synchronicity, divine providence, or coincidence, call it as you see it, her father's prophetic words filled Cynthia's eyes with tears of joy and her heart with warm recollections as she fed the white bison for the first time. Her father's vision was right on after all. In 2008, Jim Riley passed on. His widow was disabled from a car crash and relinquished care and custody of the bison to Cynthia and Charles. They were now the sole guardians of the herd. Four years later, the new guardians of the sacred white bison moved to a ranch outside of Bend, Oregon. As it turned out, this ranch didn't fit their needs. The herd was growing too. Where could they find a safe, hospitable place for their thriving bison family? During Thanksgiving weekend of 2015, the guardians of the sacred white bison moved to a historic ranch outside of Upper Lake in Lake County, California. The intent was to make this special Northern Californian community a permanent sanctuary for the bison. However, circumstance intervened, sending Cynthia and Charles on another path. In late August of 2017, the dynamic couple and their mythical bison moved cross-country to a lush 200-acre ranch in the Ohio Valley. The Guardians and their herd arrived safely in Ohio on August 27 of 2017. With her second sight, Cynthia had seen wildfires come into California and moved the herd just weeks before the Tubbs fire devoured parts of the city of Santa Rosa and other fires threatened rural towns near her ranch. In August of 2018, the area immediately surrounding her former Lake County ranch burned in another wildfire. This monstrous inferno, known as the Ranch Complex, scorched half a million acres of forest land. Ironically, 
Cynthia has come full circle, returning to Ohio, where her journey began nearly four decades ago. A magnificent medicine wheel has been drawn in the earth across the heartland of North America by the guardians of the sacred white bison. The Altai Mountains in Central Asia is exceedingly beautiful with snow-capped peaks, rich pine forests, and valleys studded with stunning alpine lakes and glaciers. The region is sparsely inhabited by various ethnic tribes who lead a quiet and contented life, herding sheep and buffaloes, raising bees and growing grains and leguminous plants. But their peace is routinely shattered by debris from rocket parts that fall from the sky. From the amusingplanet.com, a story by Kaushik, the mountain where space junk litters. The Altai region lies right beneath the flight path of the largest and busiest spaceport in the world, the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Each time a rocket is launched from the Cosmodrome, discarded fuel tanks, empty booster rockets, and other debris rain down on these remote hills, spooking residents, wrecking houses, and killing livestock. Often, the Russian space agency has to hand out compensation to the villagers when there's serious damage to property. Russian media estimates that since the spaceport has become operational in the 1950s, over 2,500 tons of rocket fragments have crashed down to Earth. Residents are warned 24 hours before each launch so that they can get themselves to safety. Most debris fall within a designated strip of land directly underneath the rocket's flight path, but rocket debris falling outside the designated areas is not uncommon. In 2008, a 10-foot-long chunk of metal from a rocket fell on a village and narrowly missed a house. A launch failure or an explosion can have far more serious consequences. In 2011, an unmanned Soyuz U rocket headed to the ISS failed within minutes of launch and tumbled back down to Earth with its tanks full of fuel. It hit the mountains of the Altai and exploded, shattering windows up to 100 kilometers away. During the Soviet era, the Union took great pains to recover booster rockets, fearing they might fall into the hands of Americans and give away secrets about the capabilities of their rockets and about the space program itself. But, since the Union collapsed, the space agency has stopped picking up rocket parts, which now lie strewn across thousands of square kilometers of the Kazakh steppe and the Altai Mountains. Within a few years after Kazakhstan broke away from the Soviet Union, a new economy sprung up around this forgotten space junk, the scrap business. Scrap dealers eagerly await for each rocket launch and then watch the sky with binoculars for fallen debris. Then they ride out on jeeps and on horseback to the crash sites and get down to work with blowtorches. Any valuable materials such as alloys of titanium and aluminum, as well as copper wires, are stripped off the wreck. Anything else which they cannot sell are dragged back to the village and used to make roofs of chicken coops, sheds, toilets, and even sledges for children to play with. But these wrecks are not safe. Rocket fuel, especially UDMH or unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, is extremely toxic 
and discarded fuel tanks can have as much as 10% of their fuel remaining when they're jettisoned from the soaring rockets. Hydrazine dissolves completely with water, allowing it to easily penetrate soil and contaminate groundwater, which is used for drinking and irrigation. Hydrazine is a known carcinogen, and this compound has often been blamed for rising cases of cancer and birth defects in the Altai region. Medical researchers say hydrazine compounds are also poisonous for the liver and central nervous system and can cause serious and irreversible neurological diseases. The problem with discarded fuel tanks is not unique to Russia. Like Baikonur, China's launch sites are also located far from the ocean and rocket parts containing unburnt fuel fall over populated areas. Launch sites near the ocean don't have this problem because they can drop their boosters relatively harmlessly into the sea. In recent years, there has been an increasing interest in rocket propellants that are non-toxic and environmentally friendly. These propellants are easier and safer to handle and require fewer procedures and less infrastructure to store and transport. Many space agencies like NASA and the ESA have already started to cut down on the use of hydrazine-based propellants limiting their use to only small rocket launches. NASA is also developing a green alternative to conventional propellants, which they hope to use in their next-generation launch vehicles and spacecraft. And if you open the show notes and click on the link to this article, this is another one that has a lot of just incredible pictures. I do suggest you go check that out. It's something to see. On a sunny September day in 1982, Mark Birchfield, a 20-year-old tobacco farmer from rural Kentucky, stood in Manhattan's Central Park, getting ready to take the most important croquet shot of his life. Mark and his father Archie were one of 32 teams competing in the doubles tournament at the 6th Annual U.S. Croquet Association National Championship. Archie already had seven state croquet titles under his belt, but this was Mark's first tournament. He hadn't even seen croquet played on grass until the month before. His father's first time was in March. Back in Kentucky, they played a different version of the game, on hard-packed clay. From Deadspin.com A story by Julian Smith How Two Kentucky Farmers Became Kings of Croquet the sport that never wanted them. Spectators crowded the waist-high chain-link fence that ringed the courts. Over five days of competition, word had spread of the Kentucky riflemen with their down-home accents and astonishing skills. Everything about them stuck out. Archie's burly farmer physique, Mark's fuzzy mustache and shaggy haircut, their homemade mallets with handles made from pool cues, They were black swans among the white-clad East Coast croquet elite who had welcomed them, as well as Archie's wife, Betty, with decidedly muted enthusiasm. But here they were, in the finals, leading by one point over two of the best players in the sport. Archie, who handled the strategy, showed his son exactly where he wanted him to put the ball. A 2009 Garden and Gun article described the scene. Archie walked over to Betty and whispered, If he don't make that shot perfectly, it's all over. I feel like I need to tell him. 
Don't you dare, she whispered back. The night before the tournament started, Mark had told his mother that even if his father knew a shot was critical, he didn't want to hear about it. He was nervous enough already. The story of how Mark and Archie got to this moment, told here through decades worth of articles and first-hand interviews with Mark, Betty, and others who were there for the Birchfields' rise through the sport, is the story of a family that not only found a peculiar passion, but refused to accept that they didn't belong in the bourgeois world that passion led them into. Mark squatted to eyeball his line. Then he stood, took a deep breath, and swung. The town of Stampin' Ground sits a little over an hour east of Louisville, in the rolling bluegrass hills of northern Kentucky. It owes its name to a natural spring that once drew buffalo in such numbers that they flattened the earth as they congregated to drink. In the 1980s, Stampin' Ground's 500 or so residents, including Archie Birchfield, mostly made a living growing tobacco and other crops and raising cattle. Archie was raised pretty tough by his mom, recalls Rick Wilhoyt, a childhood friend who often played doubles with Archie. Betty attests to this, describing a moment when she watched her mother-in-law offer a baby a pacifier, only to take it away at the last second, over and over. When are you going to give it to her? She asked, puzzled. I'm not, Archie's mother said. I'm teaching her determination. Sports came naturally to Archie. His record for scoring in a basketball game at Scott County High School, 52 points set before the introduction of three-pointers, stood for decades. Archie was also known for his persistence. Betty was a cheerleader, and Archie was smitten. You see that girl right there, he told friends? I'm going to marry her. It didn't matter to Archie that she was dating someone else at the time. It might even have sped things up. Betty remembers that when she broke things off with the boyfriend, he told her, I don't care who you go out with, as long as it's not that Archie Birchfield. Betty and Archie started dating and were married soon after graduating in 1955. One evening in 1961, they were strolling down Main Street when they noticed lights on behind the Stampin' Ground Christian Church. A handful of men were knocking balls around a clay court sprinkled with sand. The couple watched, fascinated, as the men bent over and swung 18-inch mallets between their legs, zooming balls through wickets made of bent rebar. Birchfield, you think you're a pretty good sport, Betty recalls one of the men saying. Bet you can't beat us in a game of croquet. Archie took up the challenge and proceeded to get trounced. To make it worse, the men laughed at him. Humiliated but determined, Archie found a mallet and practiced on his own in secret, rising extra early to finish his farm work so he could hit balls alone after dark. Two weeks later, he went back to the church court and won. Croquet became Archie's passion. He made his own mallets, shaping the heads from pieces of 50-year-old walnut and the shafts from sugar tree wood dried in a tobacco barn. Each head was capped with a square of bakelite plastic on one end and hard rubber on the other for different kinds of shots. On his farm just north of town, he scraped out space for two clay courts along the bank of Locust Fork Stream. He raised lights on poles for playing at night, dragged in old bus seats for spectators, and set up a concession stand selling soda, candy, and hot dogs. Archie didn't drink. From May through October, players would gather at the court in the evenings, 
Weekends don't matter much to farmers, as cows milled around behind the fences. Anyone driving past on Locust Fork Road would see a dozen or so figures on and around the courts, mostly older men, wearing coveralls. Betty, usually the only woman present, brought out pies and other homemade dishes. As darkness fell and moths swarmed the lights, laughter and occasional outbursts of anguish mixed with cicada chirps and the solid talk of mallets meeting balls. The Kentucky version of croquet has little in common with the backyard or the burgers-ready version most familiar to Americans. Modern croquet was born in 19th century Britain with roots in an older French game called roque. It was a hit among people with lots of grassy space and time on their hands, i.e. the rich. Wimbledon, remember, is still held at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. Croquet crossed the Atlantic around 1880 and made a brief appearance at the 1900 Olympics in Paris. In the 1920s and 30s, Hollywood types like Harpo Marx and Samuel Goldwyn became obsessed with the game. On Long Island estates, Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald watched Groucho Marx, Dorothy Parker, and other members of the Algonquin Roundtable play. Croquet has a way of inciting fury, even among the most mild-mannered players. Maybe it's the rules, which seem to encourage not just defeating, but punishing and humiliating your opponent. Maybe it's playing with a piece of equipment so temptingly lethal that American courts classified it as a deadly weapon. Either way, Croquet's shady reputation got it banned in Boston during the 1890s. A turn-of-the-century magazine article titled The Immorality of Croquet described a game that transforms gentle, chivalrous, good-humored man into a blaspheming, savage bully and converts the sweetest and purest type of English maidenhood into a sly, snarling, cheating, brawling spitfire. Clay Court Croquet arose in Kentucky and Tennessee during the Depression. It was cheap and open to anyone, and despite its bourgeois roots, croquet, in the South or elsewhere, is one of the few sports where age and sex don't matter in tournament play. The basic rules are the same in all versions of the game. Each player has to hit his or her balls through a series of wickets in order and then finish by staking out or hitting a post. In the Kentucky version, nine steel wickets are set solidly into hard-packed clay in a diamond layout. It's a game of physical finesse and millimeter precision. The balls can barely fit through the wickets, and a poorly aimed shot can rebound to the other end of the 100-foot-long court. With no time limits, games could go all night, sometimes until sunrise. Archie couldn't have found a more perfect outlet for his blend of competitive instincts and aggressiveness. A six-foot-one bear of a man, like John Goodman in overalls and a farmer's ball cap, he was legendarily gregarious and good-humored, never smoked, drank, or cursed. He made friends wherever he went and was happy to play with anyone, no matter how inexperienced they were. He loved teaching beginners the intricacies of the game, encouraging instead of embarrassing them. Against skilled opponents, though, Archie was ruthless. He could pull off trick shots to make a pool shark weep. But his real talent was in the game's complex strategy and Machiavellian mind games. Blocking opponents' balls, always thinking three or four shots ahead. He wasn't above coughing when a friend was taking a particularly tricky shot. Many of the skills that make a farmer successful. Patience, practical ingenuity, 
physical endurance, served Archie well on the court. To him, croquet was a combination of chess and war. I like to play for the other man to make a mistake, he told the New Yorker. 90% of the game is played from the neck up. As Betty once told the New York Times, in Kentucky we play for blood, and you make a mistake only once. During the two years following his first taste of croquet, Archie played the game almost every day, and before long, he was a local powerhouse. He won his first state croquet championship in 1962, and after that, the titles kept coming. In the 1970s alone, he won seven state championships, five in singles and two in doubles. His shelves at home overflowed with awards, some of which were repurposed golf trophies on which the clubs had been replaced by mallets. One day, in 1977, Betty was in a beauty shop in town when she saw an ad for a croquet tournament in Florida, organized by the U.S. Croquet Association. She had never heard of the group, and when she went home and asked Archie, he hadn't either, but he liked the idea of new opponents. Archie called the USCA headquarters in New York City and spoke with its president, Jack Osborne, who had founded the group just that year. Jack was an industrial designer and bon vivant who had all but single-handedly invented the Six Wicket Association version of croquet, adding time limits and other tweaks to the grass court British game to make it more challenging and fun to watch. Osborne had high hopes for his fledgling association. He dreamed of taking the niche game mainstream with help and funding from old money enclaves up and down the eastern seaboard, places like the Hamptons, Palm Beach, and Bermuda. His vision was exclusive and elite, a game meant for garden parties rather than barbecues. He turned down sponsorship offers from beer companies, preferring to cultivate a more champagne-flavored image instead. A quote in his obituary summed up his attitude toward the game. Croquet in America is a sport for the affluent class. Archie called Jack to introduce himself and ended up describing the Kentucky version of the game. Jack said it sounded like a backyard hobby, whereas the USCA was a professional organization. We play a pretty tough game up here, he once told the New Yorker. We use a lot of strategy. Archie asked Jack if he would like to bring a few of his best players down to Kentucky to see how they did against the top clay court players. Jack declined the offer, but, he added, if Archie really wanted to, he could make the trip to the Palm Beach Polo and Country Club in southern Florida to see how the game was really played. In March 1982, a tractor trailer pulled to a stop early in the morning along State Highway 882 in Wellington, Florida, across the street from the Palm Beach Polo and Country Club. The truck belonged to Archie's friend, Don Krupper, and the pair had just unloaded 22 tons of lettuce at a town 45 minutes south. Archie had agreed to help with the delivery if Don would swing by the club afterward. Shortly after sunrise, Archie grabbed a pair of mallets and walked up to the guard post at the gate. He was there to play croquet, he announced. The guard told him there was no way he was entering the club dressed in overalls. Archie and Don found an unmanned side gate and let themselves in. The club was 2,200 acres of manicured grass, palm trees, and luxury homes. If you were looking for where Prince Charles played polo and Jack Osborne presided over croquet tournaments, you were in the right place. 
Eventually, they found the croquet lawns. It was the first time Archie had ever seen the game played on grass, and it was his first encounter with the six-wicket game. The courts were 34 feet wider, and the wickets, being larger and set in turf, were more forgiving and less prone to rebounds. Longer mallets gave more leverage for shots, which was good because balls didn't roll as far as they did on clay. Archie met Teddy Prentice, the most famous croquet player in the country at the time. The men compared mallets, and Teddy explained the different rules. The balls had to make two circuits of the court, and whoever scored 26 points first, or was ahead when time ran out, won. Players could even jump one ball over another. When Archie talked up his championship record in Kentucky, the Palm Beach pro challenged him to a match. Teddy and his girlfriend against Archie and Don, who had never played before. As they played, a tall, tanned man with silver hair watched from the sidelines. Archie Peck was also a natural athlete, although his tastes ran to tennis, golf, and Jialai. Graceful and dashing, the Palm Beach native had been called the Babe Ruth of Croquet and had already won five national championships, three in singles and two in doubles with his good friend, Jack Osborne. Archie and Don played until dark, losing some games, winning more. A humbled Prentice walked them back to the truck. He told Archie that if he wanted to compete in the USCA National Championships in New York City in September, he'd first have to qualify at the Southern Regionals in Northern California. Back home, Archie gleefully called Jack Osborne again. If Teddy Prentice was the best they had to offer on the East Coast, he said, never mind the invitation to Kentucky, because he'd beaten him his very first time playing on grass. According to Garden and Gun, Osborne didn't take too kindly to the provocation. I'll tell you this, Jack said, if you ever play Mr. Jack Osborne, I'll wax your fanny. Well, Mr. Osborne, Archie replied, If you're not a whole lot better than Mr. Prentice, you'll find that hard to do. If he was going to compete in the regionals, let alone the nationals, Archie knew he had to learn the subtleties of the grass game. He started by studying the USCA rulebook cover to cover, looking for ways to use the strategy of the Kentucky game to his advantage. Winning a match on grass often comes down to who's the best shooter, On clay, though, intimidation, patience, and careful planning can prevail over fancy mallet work. Both games use the rule of deadness, where a ball that hits another has to pass through a wicket before it can hit the same ball again. Deadness can get so complicated that players often use a score sheet or courtside board to track which balls are dead on others. But Archie could keep it all in his head. He was an expert at using deadness and wiring, the tactic of obstructing balls to hamstring an opponent for an entire game. To practice on grass, Archie had to drive over six hours to the Bon Vivant Country Club, just south of Chicago. In July, he was offered a chance to play an exhibition match against Jack Osborne. Archie put on a new set of white clothes and drove north. True to his word, Jack waxed Archie's fanny in singles on the first day. But the next day, Archie won in doubles. Meanwhile, Archie still had a farm to run. His sons, Mark and David, worked alongside the hired hands, cutting hay, feeding cows, and growing tobacco. Archie had the same no-bullshit expectations his father had of him. 
hard work and respect were both absolutes, and he never made a request twice. The boys didn't have curfews, but they were expected to work the next day regardless. All you had to do was stay out late one night and then pitch hay all day, Mark says. You wouldn't do that again. In those days, before harvesting tobacco was widely automated, it was still a labor-intensive process that involved impaling stalks on wooden sticks driven into the ground. One day, Mark was spearing plants when he drove a quarter-inch-wide splinter through his hand. I thought I was done for the day, recalls Mark, but when I showed Dad, he said, go get some of that black electrical tape out of the truck. He taped it up and said, get back to work. Mark was a high-energy kid who was always in more trouble than his studious brother. As a teenager, he was most interested in hunting, cars, and girls. He had also inherited his father's uncanny hand-eye coordination, winning archery competitions, and excelling in basketball. On the farm, the boys hung around the croquet courts in the evenings and on weekends. The endless games bored them to tears, but there wasn't much else to do. Mark sometimes messed around hitting balls in between games. He wasn't particularly interested in playing, but Archie couldn't help noticing that his son's shots hit their target almost every time. Will Hoyt, Archie's regular doubles partner, had agreed to play with him in the regionals, but he said he was too busy to go to the nationals if they qualified. Archie had his pick of partners from Kentucky. When he settled on his own son, nobody was more shocked than Mark. His father had been watching him play and was impressed. You can shoot the lights out as good as anybody I ever seen. I want you to play with me, Mark remembers his father saying to him. Mark demurred, but Archie persisted, telling Mark that all he needed to do was hit the ball to the spots Archie pointed to. Archie also knew that his son had been eyeing a new hunting bow and promised him that he'd buy it for him if they won. Mark didn't want to disappoint his father. He got the impression Archie didn't think they would win anyway, so he said yes. The Birchfields' old Lincoln rolled into the Pinehurst Country Club in Pinehurst, North Carolina on August 27th. The club had three brand new grass courts, making it the largest croquet facility in the Western Hemisphere. The three-day Southern Regionals tournament had drawn some of the best players in the country, including Archie Peck, who greeted the Birchfields warmly. Other introductions were more chilly, but Archie Birchfield played the role of Kentucky ambassador with good humor. Mostly, he was content to let his mallet do the talking. At first, they were all making fun of us for bending over to hit, Mark says, till they saw how we shot. Mark's doubles partner, his cousin Dean Barber, was just as new to tournament play. Nevertheless, they ended up winning the doubles title in their division. His first time playing croquet on grass, Mark won the singles trophy by a comfortable margin, qualifying for the national championships. Archie had a tougher time. He had to fight his clay court habit of picking up balls to brush the sand off of them. It was illegal to pick up balls on grass. During one doubles match, a referee called a foul on him that he didn't understand. He said, that ain't right, that ain't in the rules, Betty recalls. When it looked like play was going to continue, he sat down in the middle of the court. Nobody is taking another shot until you show me what I just did is a foul. As the judges conferred, he looked over at Betty and winked. I got this. Sure enough, ten minutes later, the call was overturned. Another time, Archie walked off in a huff after making a shot. Betty asked what was the matter. Nothing, he said. I put it exactly where I wanted to. 
he was trolling his opponent. Archie and his partner came in third in their doubles division, which was enough to qualify for the Nationals. Peck's team came in first. The two Archies faced off again in the single finals. It appeared that Peck was going through the motions in a number of matches leading up to his exciting final confrontation and reserved some of his best shots for big matches, wrote an observer from the USCA Gazette. Birchfield played a strong game, and the match went into sudden death overtime, then double sudden death overtime. Finally, Peck won by a single wicket, 22-21, to 21, taking home the title and an authentic brass taxi horn as a trophy. The Kentuckians' second-place finish even impressed Osborne. The tournament regulars are staring at defeat at the hands of a farmer, he said in an interview with a Louisville paper. It was clear to everyone that Archie and Mark were good enough to compete at the national level. The Birchfields were headed to New York. Archie had to sell a cow to raise the money for the trip in late September and had to leave home with six acres of tobacco still uncut. But he was determined to show the East Coast snobs what a couple of Kentucky boys could do. And with Mark as his partner, he felt their odds were better than anyone knew as long as Mark followed his instructions. Driving the Lincoln through the steel and glass canyons of Manhattan, Archie, Betty, and Mark goggled at the ridiculous traffic, dirt, graffiti, and noise. Most overwhelming of all was how many people there were, almost twice as many as the state of Kentucky. The 6th Annual USCA National Championships had drawn more players and spectators than any event the Birchfields had ever seen. They were greeted with the same mix of curiosity and contempt as in North Carolina, but in New York, the attitude was ratcheted to another level. Everyone knew how little experience the Kentucky players had with tournament play on grass. At USCA-hosted cocktail parties, the Birchfields encountered the champagne-sipping image Jack Osborne was trying to cultivate in the young organization. In a TV interview, Archie described he and Betty sitting around nursing cokes in Park Avenue homes with chandeliers as big as my living room. Other guests would chat with Betty, one of the few people who could compete with Archie in ebullience while conspicuously ignoring her husband. Don't let him get to you, Betty remembers saying, seeing Archie starting to stew. Just beat him with your mallet. The lawns for the tournament were surrounded by oak trees on the west side of Central Park, within sight of Tavern on the Green and the pink gables of the Dakota. The lineup of 32 teams included the best players in the country, like Teddy Prentice and his son, winners of the past two years' doubles titles. Smart money, though, was on Archie Peck and Jack Osborne. When the matches began, Archie and Mark won game after game, even taking down the Prentices. The Kentucky pair noticed more and more people coming to every match. The New York Times, the New York Post, and local TV stations covered the tournament, although they seemed oblivious to the Birchfield's strategy. Many times, when it was Mark's turn, his father would point to a spot on the field, and Mark would put the ball right there, with machine-like precision. When they weren't playing, Betty, Mark, and Archie visited the Statue of Liberty in the World Trade Center. Mark couldn't get over how expensive the food was. We stayed in the room a lot, eating bologna and cheese, Betty says. By Sunday, the Kentucky Rifleman had made it to the finals against Jack Osborne and Archie Peck. Hundreds of spectators lined the fence in the late summer sunshine. I guess the word got out, Mark says. We kind of had a following. Those Kentucky boys sure can shoot. Mark was always jumpy before a game started, 
As the final match was about to begin, he was getting visibly nervous. Archie's initial plan was to set Mark up for an early run, meaning he would clear every wicket in succession, like an expert running the pool table. Mark shot well, but so did Peck and Osborne, and the East Coast champions held the lead through most of the game. After an hour of play, Osborne made a crucial series of wickets, and it looked like he and Peck had the match sewn up. But, as Peck said later, Osborne's ego wouldn't let him win without humiliating the Birchfields. Instead of taking the next easy shot, he tried to make an unusually difficult one, and missed. Archie and Mark were back in the game. Archie made a run of his own, and with time almost up, he and Mark had pulled ahead 20-19. to 19. If Peck cleared his next wicket, though, a mere eight-yard shot, it would tie the game and force an overtime. Peck was dead on Mark, meaning he couldn't hit Mark's ball without going through a wicket first. Archie pointed with his mallet to a spot between Peck's ball and the wicket he needed to make. If Mark could put his ball exactly there, they would block Peck's shot and maybe even decide the match. Betty warned Archie not to tell Mark how crucial the shot was, but he wasn't stupid. He knew. Mark took the shot. The ball spun across the manicured grass and rolled to a stop, exactly where Archie had indicated. Peck had one final chance. There was just enough time left for him to jump his ball over Mark's and still clear his wicket. He tried, but missed. The clock ran out. Barely six months after Archie had snuck into the Palm Beach Club and played grass croquet for the first time, the Birchfields were national champions and in the process had completed perhaps the greatest upset in croquet history. Archie hugged Mark as the crowd burst into applause, and Betty, in tears, ran out to join him. After collecting their trophies, the Birchfields returned to stamping ground, picking up Mark's new hunting bow on the way. The unlikely victory, combined with Archie's natural ebullience, made him a minor celebrity, he sat for dozens of interviews and appeared on the Pat Sajak show and Charles Curalt's On the Road. He turned down an invitation to Late Night with David Letterman, feeling that his strong personality would clash with Letterman's freewheeling interviewing style. For the next two decades, Archie firmly established himself as one of the best players in American croquet. He played on the USCA national team with Peck and Osborne, and won the USCA Doubles Championship again in 1987. Croquet took the tobacco farmer from stamping ground to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. At every tournament, Betty was there, usually wearing Archie's white embroidered jacket that listed all his championships on the back. They still encountered the occasional gust of snobbery, both on and off the courts. Archie claimed the Palm Beach crowd refused to let him teach at their croquet school, and said that the same attitude led to his exclusion from a $32,000 tournament at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach. Once, he was told to use the servant's phone when he had to make a call, the Courier-Journal reported. Jack Osborne cried when Archie won in New York, Betty remembers. He said, Birchfield, you ruined our croquet. Now we can't keep truckers, firefighters out. We can't keep none of them out. Osborne wasn't completely wrong, his son John would later say. He just saw Archie's impact as more negative than it was. Archie helped democratize the sport. He was a hero to a lot of people, John says. The two champs did eventually come to a grudging mutual respect. As for Peck, 
He told Sports Illustrated that he considered Archie the greatest thing that ever happened to this sport. There's no doubt Archie's influence changed the grass game. His shrewd use of deadness and wiring led the USCA to change its rules to make both harder to do. Championship purses weren't big enough to make it possible to be a professional croquet player. The upper crust don't need the money, Archie Grouse to Sports Illustrated, so he never stopped farming and raising cattle. But he always welcomed anyone who showed up at the farm to play, either on his two clay courts or the three grass courts he eventually added. His dedication to the game was so strong that he still played in tournaments after being diagnosed with lymphoma. Sometimes he had to lie down in the grass between shots. Even then, he won the Kentucky State Doubles Championships in 2004, five months before he died at age 67. At his funeral, it took six hours for all the mourners to pass through the church. Archie's passing marked the beginning of the end for Kentucky Clay Court Croquet. Young people didn't seem to want to learn a game that was so long and complicated. On a gray afternoon in January 2019, Mark returned to the farm on Locust Fork Road for the first time since his family sold it in 2011. The farmhouse stood empty up on the hill, and the clay courts down by the stream were overgrown with brambles. Mark picked his way around the rusted frames of bus seats where farmers once sat, shooting the breeze and waiting for their turn to play. He reflected on being one of the few people in sports history to win a national championship in a sport he didn't even particularly enjoy and never play competitively again. After New York, Archie asked his son if he was interested in playing more tournaments. I said, I'll be honest, I just went up there for you, Mark said during an interview later in the day. Croquet is just never my thing. I guess I got burned out when I was young. Although Archie never said it out loud, Mark could sense his father's disappointment. I told Mom, I feel bad that I don't like it as much as Dad because I know he wants me to play, he said, but I just don't love the game. I wish I did. The Blue Bloods were probably relieved. Peck considered Mark to be one of the most naturally talented players to ever play the game. As Mark and his father had shown the world in 1982, together they could have been unstoppable. Instead, Mark worked as a firefighter for 25 years and now works part-time for FedEx. Two of his four children have won national sports championships. Amid the ruins of the snack counter, Mark picked up a broken mallet handle. It had a plastic cap at one end that read AB 1965. He turned it over in his hand, lost in thought. Twenty feet away, the Locust Fork River flowed past fed by the springs that drew endless herds of buffalo centuries ago. Maybe there was something in the water and stamping ground after all. I live in one of the most dangerous and extreme towns in the world but I'm sure you've never heard of it. It's an isolated little place, and you need to know the terrain very well to make it safely from the last civilized place in the country to here. The natural resources are bountiful, but deadly where I live. I love this place more than anything in my life. Our town is nested on the slope of a volcano. Twice a year, on every equinox, 
It's required that we make a human sacrifice so the lava doesn't kill us all. This is so normal for everyone that all families have one or two spare children for that purpose. They were raised separated from the rest of the family so they wouldn't feel betrayed when the time of their ridiculously painful death came. They knew nothing but the gray walls of our basements and that they were born to die at 13, maybe 18, if there's a long line. So they won't be sad that they will never experience running free across the sunflower fields, bathing in the creek, making friends, meeting someone to marry, or getting a profession. They don't know such things exist. So they'll only suffer as the hot contents of the volcano tears their skin apart when they're still alive to feel every inch of their body burning. Don't ask yourself why impose such brutality on our own. We tried so hard to kidnap hitchhikers and lost wanderers to throw them to the volcano god. He simply spits the tainted meat along with a rain of flames that only calms down when we throw in a proper meal. From time to time, the wise men try again to feed our god an outsider. I don't think they're actually that wise. Everyone knows that it doesn't work. The last time it happened was four years ago. To quench our god's fury, we had to throw in three scapegoats at once. It really messed up the calendar and people had to breed more sacrificial children. On top of that, all our crops withered away that year. We didn't starve, but we lost so much money that my parents had to send me and my older sister, Jaden, to take the train and beg for coins and meals. Jaden is now married and pregnant. I still don't know if this will be a normal child or a disposable child, so I'm not thinking of myself as an uncle yet. My name is Nashi, and I'm 16. When I'm of age, I want to go to the city to study so I can come back home and make our fields even better. Everything grows here, despite its original environment. Our fruits and vegetables are delicious, and no one is ever sick, all thanks to the blessings of the volcano god. I had a brother who was meant for sacrifice, but he escaped. So, my parents had a new spare child, B. I try not to see B as a human, but it's hard because she's adorable. She's 11 now and never complains about being served the worst leftovers or how we only fed her once a week during the six months that our God was mad at us. I still think about my brother D. They, the scapegoats, are named after letters to make it easier referring to them without giving them a real human name. D had a huge birthmark on his collarbone, shaped almost exactly like a Star of David. The birthmark was the only way to tell us apart, since we are twins. I don't know if D was originally meant to be a scapegoat, but because he was marked to another god, everyone decided that he would make our lord a particularly good meal. But, besides all that, we live a happy life. Our sense of community is unmatched, since everyone knows very well you have to take one for the team. My sacrifice for us as a group is to care for my sister B, knowing that she soon will die. I always saw us as the only ones in the world who knows the meaning of loving your neighbor, the chosen ones whose flesh can tame a god. But last week the rogues and sinners came and destroyed it all. They showed up in broad daylight, a bunch of masked men and women, daring and impure. They were young and agile too. 
called our town a cult, a violation of the human rights, and a creepy show. They slashed us by the dozens, freeing the basement children, the disposable children, the children who, we are taught, have the honor to become one with the divine. Everyone who was strong enough used their arms and torsos to throw the invaders on the volcano. A lot of blood was shed. As the god rebelled against the spoiled meat, a new scapegoat was thrown in. We had to cut our losses. I did nothing. I'm scrawny. All brains, but not even that smart. I'm good at nothing. I just stood there and saw people who had given me their sweet corns and crispy lettuces being slaughtered like pigs. I helplessly watched my father be slayed in front of my own eyes. As I trembled, hiding behind a wall, Mother sent me to guard our basement in her place so she could fight back. It was crucial that I didn't let them take B. So I ran, awkwardly and too tall, but not tall in the right places. I rushed downstairs, immediately seeing the shape of a man and a woman. The woman had B on her shoulder, ready to flee. My little sister wasn't kicking or screaming. She was a very good girl. A little part of me wanted B to see the world instead of painfully burning to death inside the creamy lava. But I still had to obey my mother. I still wanted to be loyal to my town. The man had a thin and light sword in one hand, the other wrist closed, showing protruding veins that were sure to take me down unarmed. Like the others, he was awfully young, surely no more than twenty. His stance said, Come at me if you dare. Maybe I could put up a fight and hold them back enough. As the female ran upstairs with my disposable sister, I approached the man, who immediately threw me a beautiful punch. I stumbled a little, but planted my feet on the ground. I noticed he smiled under the rag covering most of his face. He then grabbed my arm and bent it with a loud creak, but his stance was partially open as he did that. I screamed in pain, telling myself that I needed to put my long legs to good use. My enemy clearly had brute force, but looking closely, he wasn't well built. The man was malnourished. He had suffered through his life. As my arms seemed to break, I did my best to at least trip him and take him down with me, and it miraculously worked. We rolled on the floor, the only floor that B ever knew. The basement was clean and relatively well furnished. We're not monsters. To our family, B was like a dog no one really wanted to take in, but everyone felt sorry for, so we gave her the bare minimum. As we rolled on the floor, I realized that this soldier wasn't made for a combat that close. He was so much more fit than I was, but he was already tired from fighting others and had taken some damage. I rolled to keep him from pinning me and used all my will to hold his forearms, keeping him from hurting me further. On the floor, he seemed unsure whether to let go of his weapon or not, which gave me some more opportunity to strike back. In a stroke of luck, I was able to maneuver the man's sword enough to wound him. It wasn't lethal, but enough to create a huge tear on his shirt. He bled on my cheek and neck. My eyes instinctively fell on his chest. He had a birthmark. Between ragged breaths, he let go of me, dropped the sword on the floor, took off the cloth covering his face and said my name, begging for his life. But he was the same man who had killed father, who had killed neighbors I adored, and friends who I knew better than I knew myself. So I reached for the sword, 
and my smile grew as I realized the man I was decollating was D. It was only after killing my twin brother that I noticed how fiercely D had fought for his life and how hurt I was. I fell on the floor, staggered, unable to help more. When I woke up, I was all sore and feeling like a lot of time had passed. I was greeted by my mother's deep blue eyes like bees, and just then I realized I was surrounded by gray, unassuming, suffocating walls. She probably didn't have the strength to bring me upstairs, but when she spoke, her voice was cold. So I see you let B escape and kill D. I attacked the invader like you told me to. He killed Dad. He was one of us. He was still one of us. Pure meat. Her voice grew so cold that I wanted to cry. By now, you should know what that means. The realization hit me like a bullet train. Father is dead. Mother is already too old to breed new life. Jaden is pregnant and can still bear plenty of children. Every family has a spare child. I'm not ready for this. I knew life outside of it. I'm not ready to give up my dreams after 16 years of being allowed to have them. It was always supposed to be you, Nishi, the runt of the twins. No, mother, please, I begged, knowing that it was pointless, knowing that if I was on the other side, I'd do the same to my scared child. I'd take one for the team. We had too many losses, you know, and spring is coming, she simply stated, and left. I know I'm next. What do I do? I don't know our exact location in the world, and it won't be long until Mother realizes I still have a cell phone with me. For now, I spent the last few hours laughing bitterly, thinking how I'd do anything to be rescued by the brother I killed. That story was entitled, My Town Survives by Making Human Sacrifices, but someone had to go and ruin everything. And it's by No Sleep author, Polonium Poisoning. Thanks a lot for that, Polonium Poisoning. I like that a lot. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.